Hello and welcome to this fourth ARC Audiobook Club on Christopher Isherwood's Goodbye to Berlin. My name is Henrietta Ingelberg and I've swapped places with your usual host Giovanna, who will now be in the panel of volunteers. She's joined by Maunus Fritz and Maya Zagresen. Maunus you might remember from the first podcast, whereas Maya is joining us for the first. Today's book is a portrayal of Berlin in the interwar period. From 1930 to 33, Christopher Isherwood The narrator, who also holds the writer's own name, meets a variety of different people and through them portrays this troubling time in Berlin history. The book is divided into six sections. The first and last are diary entries. The rest are dedicated to specific characters. One of them is Sally Bowles, the character who ended up as the main character in the very successful musical Cabaret, which certainly helped put Isherwood on the literary map for those who hadn't come across him. The novel is like a still picture of the social and political commotions characterizing Berlin during these years. The narrator's position in life and in the novel might be the most interesting aspect that we'll discuss, but maybe not. Dio, what did you think of the structure? Uh, I thought that it worked quite well, overlapping each other, and it was kind of braided in and merged, so each story could be read separately. But when you read them together, you realize that they are all sort of happening at the same time. I think the novel spans maybe two years. And they all kind of know each other, but they don't necessarily meet in the book, in, in any of the stories. Mm. But they're mentioned uh, separately as the characters knowing each other. And I think that made a good picture. But it is linear, isn't it? It's, as in, it starts with a diary and it ends with a diary. Yeah, that's true. But uh, then you have the story where Sally Bowles appear, the one called Sally Bowles. But the one called The Land Hours, which is the second last story, um, happens at the same time. They overlap at least. Yeah, yeah they overlap. Yeah. Because these two people, Sally and Natalie Landauer, meet each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the two stories are narrated separately. Okay. And that worked. So those two were overlapping? I didn't catch that. I thought they were just returned. I think only in the beginning of the land hours of one of the sections. Mm. You uh, no. go back in time. Wasn't that what you... Uh, yes, so uh, it does go back in time. So because goes, he has, in between, he's been on Rugen Island where but, he but, wanted to get away from Sally. And that confused me because does that mean that he was also getting away from Natalia when he goes to Rugen Island? or? Yes, but at that time she but had we gotten married. about... No, wait. At that, yeah, at that time she had gone to Paris and gotten married. Yeah, which we hear nothing about in the story that focuses on Sally Bowles. So yes, it is a bit confusing. <laughs> Because it's suddenly like that's as far as I understood, that's the only time where it breaks the chronology that mm. seemed to be Important. in order, and that makes me reconsider the last two chapters. Because, reconsider? Well, or just. It's like I missed something because apparently this took place before that and I had no idea. Hmm. But I think they're, they're supposed to be able to be read independently and that mm. might be why. Yeah, the question yeah. is how much it matters. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure it does. I mean, I hadn't even noticed no. who might have talked, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure it does matter. I think, no. I think it works without knowing the chronology. Without knowing. But would it work independently? Would like the scene, the lunch scene with Natalia and Sally, would that work if you were if reading you, the Landauers? independently if you're reading just that story as a short story don't you think it would work yes i think so yeah mm. you wouldn't know sally as well but you can get a feeling of her from that story yeah okay but you yeah. also presume that it's important to know sally because sally seems like one of the most important characters when you read the whole the whole book mm. but in the landauer section she's not the most important 
I think Sally is such a uh, overrated character. That's not what I was going to say. No. Okay, I don't actually Sorry. think so. Uh, no, she's a very like very crystal clear character, oh. and like she makes a lot of sense. I think, mm. and so like you don't need to see a lot of her for her as a character to make sense in the Landauer story. No, she does seem to embody the very the time the book is set in of decline. Yeah, well, the decadence that invites many creative souls, like Isherwood himself, uh, to the city, but also what lies underneath. Why he goes there? In what way? The wartime, and um, well, it's a place for him to be able to be himself. But how does Sally embody that? I mean, I think mm. I know what you mean, but by seeming a bit shallow, and you know, her painted fingernails, the green painted fingernails, dirty hiding, hands. Yeah, hiding her dirty hands. Mm. But what do you think of it? You don't like her. <laughs> it seems like I thought she was overrated. I didn't get his fascination of her. I thought she was. Boring. Yeah, Boring. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think she was interesting. Yeah, no, what I thought was way more interesting and a much, unfortunately, shorter story was the one where he goes, he leaves her, and he goes to the Rugen Island, uh, summer 1931, and the relationship between Otto and Peter, the two men that he has spent his vacation with, I think that was way more complex, and the description of that was more interesting of that power struggle between them, of not actually liking another person, but needing them to like you. and As in, he needs them to like him? No, that Peter needs for Otto yeah. to like him, but Peter doesn't actually like Otto, and they're so different, but Peter needs Otto's affection, and he portrays that sort of psychological drama between mm -hmm. these two, of how Peter will always offer the good chair to Otto, And Otto would never do that because Otto thinks only of himself and how it brings Peter to despair. And I thought that was really interesting. But isn't that, in a sense, not an echo, but reminiscent in some way of the power dynamics between Christopher and Sally? But because what are I the power dynamics I between them? Because I don't the see anyone there having something that the other one wants. Oh, I, I yes. disagree. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yes. Mm. He's, I mean, he wants her. No, I don't think so. I mean, he says almost pretty explicitly. That he wants her? No. I mean, I, I think he says... No, he does. I mean, I, th I think he says this... Because I noticed that he had no emotions really towards... Or like, no desires or no nothing. It says on page 80, I think. But no, it wasn't love either. It was worse. He talked like... This is like if it's after having had a... Uh, he met up with Sally after having written some piece of, mm. some some journalistic piece that she wanted him to uh, write for her, and then he did, and then she didn't like it, and they had sort of a, a fallout. And mm. then he leaves her and feels, like he says, what an utter little bitch she is, I thought. After all, I told myself, it's only what I've always known she was like, right from the start. And then he goes on, and then he's, uh, I'd flattered myself, why not be frank about it, that she was fond of me. Well, I'd been wrong, it seemed, but could I blame her for that? Yet I did blame her. I was furious with her. Nothing would have pleased me more at that moment than to see her soundly whipped. Indeed, I was so absurdly upset that I began to wonder whether I hadn't all this time, in my own peculiar way, been in love with Sally Bowles myself. But no, it but wasn't yeah, then love it goes on, either. But it was worse. It was the cheapest, most childish kind of wounded vanity. And that's... Like, he, like it's he says he considers it at this point, but it's the only point and he immediately decides that it's not. But I think that's the thing with Christopher and Sally, that they both 
I don't think they actually really like each other, but they really, really want the other one to like them. Mm. And that's why he's so hurt when she doesn't like the article. Mm. But when, when she asks him to write the article, he goes and he does it immediately, really quickly, and he's really pleased with his work. Like, why would he do that? He's not doing that as a favor to help her out. He's doing that because he wants her to say, that was really good, Christopher. Okay. Mm. I think. And I think that's that all the characters in this book are bored with each other and they're all desperately trying not to bore each other and that's what all the relationships come down to. No one really likes each other. I and then they true. get bored. It's like yeah. a yeah. No, consumerist yeah. relationship culture. And that's why I'm, that's what I was getting at when I said that Peter and Otto's relationship is the same as Sally and Christopher's. Okay, yeah. It's about trying to postpone the other's boredom. Mm-hmm. But I think also maybe an interesting point could be here. Like th- these are pretty tough times, and maybe like the maybe because everything is so horrible, it's tough to be really uh, emotionally engaged with each other because everybody knows that tomorrow the world could end. Basically, yeah. yeah. That a lot of people are disappearing. Also in the story, Bernard Landauer and uh, people that use that seem to be a big. You mentioned that also just now. That well, he disappears without us knowing where he goes. So when you say "I see you tomorrow" or "see you later," you never know if you do. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't really create any affections towards anyone. Mm. Is it anyone else than Bernard Landau who disappears? Fritz. Yeah. The love, short yeah. love of yeah, the Sally. Yeah. Disappears, but not disappears. But he tries to create he, affections. He sends then. a letter. Yeah, Bernard disappears because there's just, there's of the Nazi disappearing yeah. and, and just moved on to other things. Yeah. Disappearing, yeah. <laughs> like Clive does also, and Klaus. Yes. And Fritz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then also throughout the book, it is littered with references to the Jews being assaulted and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things are like peppered all over. Yeah. And in such a light tone, uh, the first story or the second story when he's tutoring the girl hippie and they're sitting at the dinner table and the dad is like almost cheers- cheerfully saying that, no, you can't borrow the car tomorrow because, you know, they'll throw stones in it. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's as if it's not real. Mm. Until the last chapter, when it suddenly feels very real, the Nazi threat. But, but yeah, but it's there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You feel it from the beginning, but it doesn't seem important mm. at any point. No, to him. And you know, and it's that if no one's really taking it seriously, yeah. even the Jews he meets. Yeah, but isn't that why his position, as you mentioned, of him being a camera or assuming to be a camera from the beginning, is uh, well, is interesting because that's the position that everyone seems to try to have. Not not be affected by anything around him. Well, he says, just to, to quote what you were talking about, on the first page, I'm a camera with its shutter open, quite passive, recording, not thinking. Recording the man shaving at the window opposite and the woman in the kimono washing her hair. Someday all this will have to be develop, developed, carefully printed and fixed. But yeah, isn't it the position they all take? But isn't that exactly why he needs to record it so it can later... Stand as a document because there's mm. no way for us, like even though it's recorded by his camera the way it, quote unquote, w- was mm. historically, like we can't unknow the way the Nazi threat turned out. Mm-hmm. But this is the closest that we'll get to it. It does, but then showing showing them to us objectively. No, I'm like this. Is just like objectively, I'm yeah. I'm sort of having yeah. a. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, but that's I'm, what he's trying to do. Well, yeah, and I, I'm just yeah, no, no, I'm not sure he he wants like I don't, I'm not sure objectivity is one of his like uh, aims. I think more like he's this this way of recording things is 
uh, is a device for him to both deal with how horrible everything is mm. and it is a way of portraying how you survive those kind of things in those mm. situations because people are being killed right outside your door all the time and this is I mean, if you deal with it heads-on and have your emotional reactions to all of it, you can you cannot exist. You can't exist. Yeah. Uh, so this is a way of showing how people. How you need to survive. Yeah, what you need to do in yeah. order to survive those kind of things. So that's what we know when reading it now. Yeah, but that's also what the book feels a little bit like to me. A survival. Yeah, and like or as a way of dealing with it more than as a way of describing it objectively. But um, what do you think about the fact that it's his own name? Well, the, the narrator is, is, is the writer's own name. Yeah, at one point he called it, or in the introduction, he calls his narrator a convenient ventriloquist dummy. That's why he, he explains that as the reason why he uses his own name. Mm. But is it also a way of still being a part of it? But um, I mean, it works like it's nice to think that it's him who's there. Yeah. And I mean, he probably was there. I don't. I don't actually know what is truth and what is fiction here. But he was there. Yeah, and but I mean, how much of this? How much yeah. of these specific? People, yeah. Well, Do you know? Well, a lot of the people, Sally Bowles was a woman called Jean Rees or okay. Rice or something. Okay. So many of the people have, have some sort of double that you can trace them to, at least. Okay. Um, it also seems a bit pretentious using your name, hmm. doesn't it? And <laughs> sort of uh, covering yourself in this veil of mystique, like what happened, what didn't happen. You could have called the narrator Tom John. <laughs> And yeah, well, isn't that the interesting thing that he maybe he does it to be to not be so much a part of it, but maybe he you make you think it's pretentious, but he thinks it's I'm saying it he could be pretentious. No, no, but I said that he, he <laughs> thinks no it's convenient and you find it pretentious. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, you could also argue the other way around that it would be pretentious to come up with some persona that you know he was there and like it's probably based on his own experience. So why would he come up with someone some fictive? Main character? I mean, I don't know. But he says that don't take this literally and this is not autobiographical. <laughs> no, but um, neither is it, I mean, completely spun out of thin air. But nothing is. I think that's also the thing. Like, we can make a lot out of this, but just maybe agree that all narrators somehow are part of, or all writers. I just feel like you're trying to play a trick on me and you're trying to make me really consider whether this is real or not real and what implications it has that you're using your own name, so I'm just going to refuse to think about it. Fair enough. <laughs> and then I refuse to think about it the entire book because I'm like, you can't do this to me. <laughs> but then we should talk about the best way to read. <laughs> no, but, I mean, for me, what was strongest about this book was like the way it depicted that time. Yeah. And so whether or not it is factually what he experienced is yeah, not, it's not, important. not necessarily that important. No. Can I just say something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't like the book that much and I'm still not quite sure. But then I read a review uh, of the book that I would like to read out loud because I really like it. And I think that's also true. <laughs> and it's some random person on the internet that writes... <laughs> it was readable and engaging enough, yes. It had one or two interesting vignettes on pre-Nazi Germany, yes. But dear me, what a flagrant misogynist. He wasn't capable of introducing a single female character without describing and judging her physical appearance and his judgment of invariably damning. All women are somehow grotesque or otherwise could be good-looking were it not for some minor fault dutifully analyzed in detail by him. 
that lets them down completely and makes them as grotesque and disgusting as all the other women who have the misfortune to meet him. And this and much else besides the Christopher Isherwood character is an unmitigated dickhead, which is why the only parts of the book I really liked were the ones that had nothing to do with him at all. And then he says, save the bother and read Imgard Cohn's Artificial Silk Girl instead. And Maya... You read that book. I read God's Official Silk Girl, <laughs> and it's one of my favorite books in the entire world. <laughs> it takes place very much in the same time, in the same arena, the same kind of people. And she's she's sort of a Sally Bowles character or like a young pseudo-prostitute. Prostitute. And I think it's, it's really interesting because this opens, Goodbye to Berlin opens with this, the famous I am a camera quote, whereas the artificial silk girl, one of the first statements is that she's writing in her diary, Doris, that I want to write my life like a movie. And then in the same way as Sally Bowles, she wants to, she dreams of becoming a movie star. And then she writes, her writing is really cinematic. She's always directing at the same time a cinematic gaze at herself and inside herself, into herself. So where he tries to be objective, she's always almost so so busy with her own feelings that she notices nothing else and she's very naive. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, she's, she's, she's internalized the male gaze in a sense and very much like she judges herself and every other female as harshly as he does. But it's a really interesting gaze. And I think that book utilizes its gazing position in a more interesting way. Okay, yeah. Um, Because Christopher doesn't view himself. No, he always looks at at other people and Mm -hmm. says that he doesn't judge, but he's totally judging. Mm -hmm. You can't not judge. And she's judging, but she's she's putting so much of herself into it. Okay, so I didn't get this when I was reading it, but during research about this book, I found out that Isha was gay. So talking about the male gaze and his complete disinterest in women, I never noticed reading this book, but maybe it's the same for the character. I think I always sort of suspected a little bit. Always, also something underlying. And also in his relationship to Sally, why, he's nev- why is he never with Sally when, he, when she's with so many different men? But I figured that that was because he was objective. Yeah, and, but, but then, yeah. And he doesn't really take part in anything. No. Uh, he's always just standing but a little bit part of a describing thing. the only place that I saw Oh, well, the first place I noticed he had feelings were with the Natalie Landau. Yeah. When he when wanted she... to make he wanted to make her jealous. Yeah, well, he realized that she was in love, but not with him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I wouldn't have guessed. But I, I mean, I, I thought it felt sort of like an undercurrent. Yeah. Without, no, without being able to quite put my finger on where it was yeah. or what it was. But... It was de- definitely not explicit, I don't think. He seemed, he seemed more interested in male feelings mm-hmm. maybe not male physique or he didn't bring that up but he was definitely more intrigued whereas the girls and that can seem misogynistic as well but he trivialized all the the feelings of all the females quite a lot and like now she's thinking this now she's thinking that like made them seem like very simple creatures whereas mm-hmm. all the men were super interesting and mysterious but maybe that's mm-hmm. just because <laughs> he was more into them. Are you going to say that? Found them more interesting. How about um, Otto? Mm-hmm. He's not being very kind towards Very kind. I thought he him. was. Like, um, almost idealizing him as the natural man. Mm-hmm. Like, sort of animalistic uh, 
driven by purely hedonistic motives. Yeah. And then Peter, his uh, intellectual sidekick or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you think he's being kind towards both of them? Yeah, I think so. Because it's true, I think that with the uh, females in the book, they could always be good looking if it wasn't for something that makes them not so <laughs> not good looking. Really. But mm. that doesn't count for the men. With hippies, he has rather... eyes like a cow. And uh, <laughs> Sally is dirty and has too much makeup on. And uh, Natalie Landau looks like a fox because of her nose. And she could be really pretty if it wasn't like for the hair and the nose and but various he, other things. Doesn't he do that for the men as well? I mean, I I, are you so. sure? I no. I would like to prove <laughs> it wrong. I just still think it's more problematic that he doesn't seem to think any of the females have complex inner lives. Mm-hmm. Than that he just like personally, I'd much rather be judged on my like be I'd rather people see my <laughs> unique <laughs> complex inner life and think I have an ugly nose <laughs> yeah. than they think I'm pretty and, and stupid mm-hmm. there's also Klaus who uh, who um makes uh, Sally pregnant at some point or um at least we think so, but that's another discussion. Yeah, he runs off and he uh, he uh, cheats, cheats or whatever. Nice, deceives. deceives. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm. But isn't Otto deceiving Peter as well? Otto Dece- is deceiving. Otto can deceive Peter because Peter wants to be deceived yeah. just yeah. as much as Sally wants to be deceived. Except like Sally, yeah. Sally marries exactly. a sixteen-year-old boy. Yeah. <laughs> or, in, gets or gets engaged, gets yeah. engaged yeah. in a day because yeah. he says he's a film producer. Yeah. Sally wants to be deceived. And so does Peter. Yeah, and Peter is male. That's I think that's that was my only point. That, that it's not only the females who are mm. portrayed as able to be deceived. I'm just saying, like the first time we meet both Otto and Peter. <laughs> Here comes. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, like, I looked it up. <laughs> but, like, neither, neither of them like uh, are, are uh, described very uh, nicely. He yeah. doesn't talk about beauty because, but I mean, maybe that's because they are male. Yeah, I think like this disregarding the fact that we think he might be gay yeah. mm. is like he don't, we don't describe the people of your own sex that you're supposedly not sexually interested in with necessarily with beauty mm. but just like he describes their physical traits and they're not particularly flattering mm. yeah also has a face like a very ripe peach yeah like there's, it goes on like both yeah, of them are described peaches are nice <laughs> yeah it is I like, like a little peaches. bit I, I have to somehow his hair is fair <laughs> and thick Growing low yeah, on his on his forehead, <laughs> he has small sparkling eyes, full of naughtiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he and totally wants to have sex with him. <laughs> yeah. Like actually, I disregard what I said about beautiful because this is an description of uh, of Otto on the following page. Otto certainly has a superb pair of shoulders and chest for a boy of his age, but this body is nevertheless somehow slightly ridiculous. The beautiful ripe lines of the torso taper away too suddenly to his rather absurd little buttocks and spindly, immature legs. Ah, this became so erotic. (laughs) Ah, that's your reading. (laughs) Okay, I'm just saying, I don't think necessarily it's... It's not black and white. No. Maybe that's the thing. It's not misogynistic. Then I'm Mm. leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Mm. Do you guys want to talk more about Peter and Otto? Because I thought they were interesting. They're an interesting couple. Yeah. Yeah. The way he says, Otto is his whole body. And it's the way you were reading too. Peter is only his head. Mm -hmm. Otto moves fluidly, effortlessly. His gestures have the savage, unconscious grace of a cruel, elegant animal. What you were saying also of you, of him being primal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Peter being this very sophisticated yeah. mind. Yeah. yeah. Peter's a mind and Otto is a body. Yeah. yeah. Culture and nature. Sorry, can we just 
about <laughs> how Bernard is described. <laughs> okay, go to Bernard. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this evening, he was wearing a beautifully embroidered kimono over his town clothes. He was not quite as I remembered him from our first meeting. I hadn't seen him then as being in the least oriental. The kimono, I suppose, brought this out. His over-civilized, prim, finely drawn, beaky profile gave him something of the air of a bird in a piece of Chinese embroidery. He was soft, negative, I thought, yet curiously potent, with the static potency of a carved ivory figure in his shrine. How did I read past all of that? <laughs> so, he's not being judged. On his beauty <laughs> and his. But maybe he's just genuinely beautiful, as apart from every, anyone else. So you're just saying there are no <laughs> beautiful girls or women in Weimar Berlin? I don't know. Maybe not. I understand. <laughs> you should read the artificial silk girl, which mm. has lots of beautiful girls. I, I see Natalia as beautiful in my head. It might be my own reading of her. She would have been if it wasn't for all that for the hair big, yeah, and, and the big nose. nose. Yeah. She's such a shame. She could have been <laughs> such a pretty girl. Lucky she's rich. Yeah, and she hopefully has a very rich inner life. I bet she's intelligent. <laughs> But we'll never know. No. Because Christopher doesn't bring it out in her. Doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is yet again an advert. We just thought we'd take this opportunity to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Arc Books on Wulaga, right in the heart of Copenhagen's buzzing literary district. All our books are handpicked by our volunteers, so you're only one serendipitous human interaction away from maybe finding your new favorite book. Also, we want to let you know about what's going to be happening at the store in the next week or so. On Sunday, the 28th of February at 4 p.m., We'll be hosting a concert by English singer-songwriter Anna Silvera, whose song Hometown you're listening to right now. And next week, on Thursday the 3rd at 7pm, Arc Books presents brief interviews with hideous men. An evening of readings and discussions on David Foster Wallace's book and the way it presents the complications of misogyny. Featuring Michael Franson and Emma Halton. Now back to the podcast. Served on sea dishes for doves and for gods. But what did you think of the narrator in himself? In himself. Mm -hmm. uh, I I thought that issue was not very likable. Uh, and we talked about this a little <clears throat> a little earlier that the fact that he tries to take sort of subtract himself from the equation. Mm -hmm is, I think, not a very likable thing to do. I mean, it's sort of a way of avoiding having any responsibility for, like, how people... Like, what happens in the book. Like he, he, How he, you affect people. Yeah, how you yeah. affect people. Like, he apparently, like, because he's just a camera moving around, he doesn't have any responsibility for the mm -hmm. people around him. Or And, like, it just seems very... Like, he, he seems like a coward in some way to me, mm -hmm. I think. But don't you think that's what he found finds out during the book? Like yeah, because, like several yeah. several times yeah. throughout the book. But then I he think. finds out, as in it's not. So so he finds out that it's not possible to have that kind of position in life because because mean? because his position affects other people, even if he wants it to or not. Yeah, I guess maybe. No, I see what you mean. Mm. But like, is that sort of sort of like a thing that happens throughout the book? You think? Uh, I think very short, very short, or oh, small instances of it, mm. but mainly in the in the last part, in the the other in the diary entry and the in the end. 
Yeah, I guess maybe. I, mean, yeah. I, 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 I didn't particularly notice that. He ends up saying, I catch sight of my face in the mirror of a shop and I'm horrified to see that I'm smiling. So he doesn't know that he's reacting to... Mm. And then he says, you can't help smiling in such beautiful weather. But then he's describing how uh, the complete decline of Berlin in the last pages. I think to me, just the fact that he tries to sort of act as if he was objective by removing himself yeah. from the scene is sort of a, like everything he depicts is, is like gets the, sh- like the sheen of reality. But everything he depicts is depicted through his eyes. And I think that, yeah, that's, like, and, that's and how he sort of shines that, glasses that over. Yeah, I think. exactly. And that's what, but that's what he yeah, finds what out with, with that kind with that sentence in the end. Yeah, I think maybe um, that's actually, uh, I really like the fact that he catches a glimpse of himself in the yeah, mirror. I yeah. think that's really, really yeah. nice. Yeah. But Everybody isn't it also, in a sense, like this whole camera with the shutter open? Mm-hmm. I mean, to have a camera yeah. with the shutter open is meaningless. If you have the shutter open, you're going to end up with a blank picture. But it also seems like a metaphor for being psychotic, because if you are a camera that always has a shutter open, it means that you have no filter. And that's how Is that what people are. Yeah. But, but it just means, like, to have a camera, you need a person, you need some kind of subjective view yeah. to operate yes. the shutter, yeah. to turn it on and off. Yeah. If you have the shutter open always, it's meaningless. But the camera might in itself also be the, the least usable way of depicting something objectively. Because you're always the one who's choosing what. Well, you can, yeah. because... But, but not with the shutter open. Unless you operate the camera, yeah. the camera's not recording anything. Mm. Because that's not how cameras work. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I don't know if it's some kind of twisted metaphor joke or something. That I'm a camera with the shutter open, I'm not putting my objective view onto anything. But of course... Like, that's not possible, because to record anything with a camera, you're pointing it at something and you're pressing the shutter. Yeah. Maybe the the, the entire thing about being objective, I think actually the camera, I think the point, especially about you have to point the camera at something, it's a clear indication that he doesn't want to be, like, this idea of objectivity is not not necessarily, like, on the agenda for... But objectivity and passivity is also not the same thing. No, 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 for sure, for sure. I'm just... Agreeing. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you agreeing. Okay, so it's not... You don't think he's claiming at any point to be objective? No, only passive, Mm. I think. um, Which might be considered to be the same thing. No, I think think that's a very good point. Yeah, not the same rule. No, it's not the same. No. Yeah. Maya, you've lived in Berlin. Is this a Berlin you can recognize? No. It's not. It's not. (laughs) Um, It doesn't invite... Decadence in this, uh, in some ways. Well, it's a Berlin that I recognize in the sense that historical buildings or features of Berlin draw a lot of attention to themselves because there's so few of them. Mm, okay. So in that sense, it's a Berlin I recognize in the streets popping up in between all of the Berlin that's new. Yeah. What does it do to you as a reader that you know the streets that you mentioned? I think... In a sense, it puts the awaiting gloom that comes after the end of the novel into mm. more of a perspective because I know that I know for a fact mm. what happened. I know as a lived fact rather than a known fact yeah. that this is not there anymore. Yeah. What the consequences of this is? Yeah. And so it's it's different than reading about the lead up or the past of wars that take place in places you've never been mm-hmm. because even though you know it's terrible you don't you don't feel, feel it, it in this or you feel it but you don't it doesn't exist mm-hmm. in your life so would you recommend the book to you um not really i didn't like it that much but i thought it became 
better now that we talked about it. But when I read it at home, I was not impressed. And I don't know why. I think it's because the narrative just unfolds and there's this plot and it's chronological. And I thought it was super boring. And I didn't think that his observations were that interesting. So So it's not an unpleasant (laughs) book, but it's not really a good book either, I think. It might be an important book. I don't know, because of the how it depicts Berlin in the interwar period. But it's not the only one that's done so. No, so but maybe this that. does it better or in its, in its own way. But yeah, I don't know. If people asked me for a book that shows Berlin right before the Second World War and it had to be fiction, I would recommend this book. Fair enough. But I'm probably not going to make it the Christmas gift of 2016. <laughs> well, Maya, what did you think? I would recommend it, and I have recommended it before to customers. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the good things about this bookshop, that we can all have our opinions. <laughs> <laughs> and, they and then the customers will just hope that they agree with whoever says <laughs> okay. No, I think... I think it's good. I think it's it's historically important or it's a good image of Berlin, but I also think it's enjoyable. I like reading it. But I still uh, would rather recommend The Artificial Silk Girl that is unfortunately severely out of print and has been for years. Mm. But, but you People <laughs> should read that instead. <laughs> instead. What did you think, Marcus? I like it. I think it's a book that... I think there's different ways or different reasons you can like books for. Mm. And I think this was a book that, uh, after having read it, I was left with a very distinct picture of the characters in it. Mm. And maybe especially uh, Miss Bowles. Mm. But uh, and I, maybe that's why she was uh, like turned into a cabaret. Yeah. Or maybe it's because of Liza Minnelli that you have the picture in your head. That is possible yeah. also. I've, I've watched cabaret. But and I don't think so. I think she's very distinct. And I think... Um, this book, I th- while it, mm, I don't think it was uh, riveting reading. I, like it wasn't a page turner, and it mm-hmm. wasn't a, a big philosophical work either. But it was the like for what it was, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And what it was was, as what like everyone said, is a picture of a time and a picture of the way of living in this time, mm-hmm. which I thought it was it did well. Mm-hmm. Not a book I would have found myself, I don't think, but I'm really glad I did. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend it, Henriette? <laughs> uh, I'd recommend it, yeah. But uh, I think for the same reasons that Manus and Maya, um, it's not a very important book, it's not a big book. I do think I would call it a page-turner, though, because it's very, because it's chronological and because it's pleasant in a way and you've seen some sort of or de- development throughout the book. And I think when you find those small things like the camera in the beginning and the mirror himself, seeing himself in the mirror, small things like that makes it coherent in a very nice way that you might only see when you read it closely. Yeah, that was, uh, that, I yeah. think that was really nice. Yeah. Spotting that, for sure. Cool. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, I okay. guess that's uh, <laughs> good bicycle but- in then. Okay, well, this is it for now. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in next time for something completely different. We'll talk about Chris Krause's I Love Dick, a book about a former literary court down in art books. As after one read it, we all had to. Among many other things, we'll discuss if the book is creating a new genre by combining theory, fiction and the epistolary novel. Till next time.